Hope y'all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts, book of Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, just look underneath and grab one of those blue and white ones and you can open up to page 603, page 603, that's where we'll be today. Um, Acts chapter 19, uh, we have been studying through the book of Acts here for a long time and uh, last week we rejoined it, we had taken a brief, I guess brief 16 week excursus over to... First Corinthians, and now we're back into <coughs> the book of Acts. And so last week we picked up middle of, of chapter 18 after Paul had planted the church in Corinth, and now we're, we've seen him leave Corinth and drop off Apollos, I'm sorry, drop off Priscilla and Aquila, they meet Apollos, Apollos goes to Corinth, uh, starts working in a Corinth where Paul had gone. So that's, that's kind of where we're picking up in Acts chapter 19. So we'll, we'll review that in just a second, but um, if you will, if you're able to, Let's stand together. We're going to read Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. It's the text today, and then we will look at it together. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, And to what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some of them became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took uh, to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name by, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Jewish high priests named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the men in whom the evil spirit leapt, and the man in whom the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it sounded it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and, might, and prevail mightily. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Lord, be with us now as we look into your word. We pray that... You would equip us all by the power of the Spirit to see and understand, but more so than that, God, that you would stir our emotions and our affections for our Lord Jesus, that we would, each week as we come, we certainly forget the goodness of the gospel, forget the sweet mercies of Christ toward us, that we would see these things, remember these things, and we would also be encouraged in our own personal walks as we seek to make disciples. We'd be encouraged to continue in that endeavor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as we've seen last week, if you look at Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 18, Paul, as we were looking at last week, <coughs> was leaving Corinth. He took Priscilla and Aquila with him, and he went through these, these different places, and he went to Ephesus. And as he went to Ephesus, uh, he ministered a little bit there, and after he left Ephesus, he left Priscilla and Aquila, and he went back all the way over to Jerusalem, went back to Antioch, and then after that started his third missionary journey, as it says in verse 23 uh, of chapter 18, he spent some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and, and Phrygia, strengthening all disciples. So thus begins his third missionary journey, and he's going to work his way back over to Ephesus. So um, got a new map, I'm excited about it, you can take a look at it here. Uh, so what we saw last week is Paul left Corinth and went over to Ephesus right here uh, by boat. This is the third missionary journey. I'm 
kind of recalling the second missionary journey from last week. He dropped them off, and he went all the way down to Jerusalem, talked to them, and he went up to Antioch, and that's kind of where we're picking up, where it says in verse 23 that he went through this region of uh, Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening disciples. And what he's doing here now on this third missionary journey, on the first missionary journey, he went through here on more of an evangelistic movement, trying to see people that didn't know Jesus, tell them about Jesus. Now that it's the third missionary journey, uh, this is more of a discipleship third missionary journey. So he's already seen them come to know Christ, and now he's wanting them to come to know Christ. And it, uh, so where he left in Ephesus here, Priscilla and Aquila, instead of taking a boat to there, it says that he made his way inland to Ephesus. So he's marching through and he's coming to Ephesus is where we're going to pick up here today as he's getting to Ephesus in chapter 19, verse 1. It said, happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Apollos had gone over to Corinth where Paul had been. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. He came to Ephesus, which is where we're picking up here in 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Now, Ephesus itself was a pretty large city, a commercial center uh, of this region. You can see that it's in the waterway, so uh, you could get to it both by boat and land, which these kinds of cities uh, made it so that their commerce was large. It was the fourth largest city in the empire. Um, Kent Hughes says Ephesus was the place that every kind of magician, witch, clairvoyant, and criminal uh, came to. Con artists and murderers all found the climate of Ephesus usually agreeable. So it was a, it was a pagan city, no doubt. Uh, and the population, I mean, this is rather large, the population of Ephesus, even in, you know, 2,000 years ago, first century, was probably somewhere between 200 to 400,000 people. Really large. Think St. Louis, Missouri, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Large cities. Large cities. Uh, they would have had a football team, Ephesus. They would have been the Ephesus criminals or something like that. But um, they would have had a football team. So it's a big city, right? It's a big city. Uh, and Paul really seeks to get there. This is a major stop for him in his third missionary journey, and we're going to see some of the things that he does there. So uh, in the first set of verses 1 through 10, we're going to look as Paul evangelizes the city of Ephesus, these different groups that he evangelizes, and how that can apply to us, and how we can think through how we evangelize people. And in the second group, as he's finishing, we're going to see some of the effects of his gospel ministry, and how that can encourage you. So the first thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 10 is Paul evangelizes Ephesus. Paul evangelizes Ephesus. So in verse 1, Paul came through the inland country and came to Ephesus there. He found some disciples, and he said to them. Thus begins his, his evangelization here in the city of Ephesus. He promised in 1821 that if it, the Lord wills, I'll try to come back. And so he's fulfilling this promise, finally being able to come back to them uh, after spending some time in Jerusalem and Antioch. And here he is back uh, in Ephesus. And so as he's there, uh, he goes to this first group, uh, and it says in verse 2, and he said to them, uh, he came to, to them, some disciples, did you believe, or did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And then Paul thinks that's interesting, so he's going to ask some more questions. And he said, and to what uh, then were you baptized? And they said, and to John's baptism. So they had apparently uh, had this baptism that was the, the baptism of John. And so they had not yet heard of, if you remember we're studying through Acts a long time ago, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter stands up at Pentecost and preaches in this kind of region, something happens where he preaches, the Holy Spirit comes, and those who trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit came inside them, and they were believers now. Well, that was a regional thing. It hadn't happened all the way because they, they still had to reach people. But there were some people that were believers in God, or they understood things about um, God, or even these particular people, they had been baptized uh, in John's baptism, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. And this is just a first century occurrence. This isn't something that would happen today. But if you have, if you want to, you can flip back uh, about four books to the left. In Matthew chapter 3, he tells us, uh, uh, Matthew does, about this baptism John was, was doing. So before, before Jesus came, uh, Matthew chapter 3 records the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, who would go before G Jesus and tell people and, and do a baptism. It's, so in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, it says that, my voice just cracked, that's embarrassing. It says in verse 2, I'm 43 and still voice cracking. Verse, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So this was the message of John the Baptist before Christ going around and he's proclaiming repentance to these people, telling them that they need to repent. As you can continue in verse 3, it says the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. So John went before Jesus telling them that Jesus was coming. And as he's doing this, he's doing 
uh, baptism as well. And he's obviously speaking ill towards those who were, uh, who were Pharisees. And you can see that in verse 6, they were being baptized in the River Jordan. They were confessing their sins. And he tells the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 8 that they need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then you can even see down in verse 11, John explains to them what's happening really in Acts chapter 19. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier, mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so uh, in this particular time, Paul is coming upon these people who had heard about John in that region. They had received John's baptism, but they had not actually yet come to know Christ. If you were here last week, you can say, well, that sounds a little bit like Apollos, where his baptism wasn't exactly correct, uh, but these guys also have that. So it sounds like it's similar. And I argued last week that Apollos actually was a believer and that he just needed some doctrinal correction. It gives some descriptions of, of Apollos last week where it said that he was a confident in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. It's just that he had a misunderstanding of baptism. These particular people didn't have any of those things said about them. And so I think that this is different than Apollos, where Apollos was likely a believer, just needed some theological correction. These particular people were not believers. However, very open, very, very open to who Jesus was. So as Paul goes into the, this particular city, he runs into these disciples, 12 disciples of John, and he tells them more accurately about who Christ is. I think he proclaims the gospel when it says in verse 4, and they ask him, Paul asks uh, who they were baptizing. They said, baptized in the name of John, baptized a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come. After that, that is Jesus, and this is where Paul proclaims the gospel. So whom does Paul evangelize in Ephesus? The first set of group that we can see here in A, you can go ahead and put up A, is the disciples of John. He does that in verses 1 through 7. As I said, different than Apollos, uh, no doubt. But these pe particular people um, were, were open to the good news of Jesus. And Paul's main method of evangelism, you can see there, since they're very open to Christ, is questions. He asks them straight up questions. So, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No. And then Paul's thinking, okay, that's interesting. And to what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism. So through, through some simple questions to people who are very open to Christ, he's able to help them, uh, help them understand who Christ was. So by asking, this is a, uh, in Acts chapter 19, kind of a little mini Pentecost of Paul. You know, Peter had the big one where 3,000. Paul has the mini one where they, he, he preaches to them, to these 12. They get saved and the Holy Spirit falls on them and they start speaking in tongues as well. Now, we should, when we read this, not think that this is the way it happened. This, there are some things that happen here that are standard for us. You proclaim Christ, they trust Christ, they can get, after they get uh, saved, after proclaiming Christ, they'll receive the Holy Spirit, and then they have a demonstration that they receive the Holy Spirit. For them, it's proclaiming uh, tongues and, and prophecy. For us, it's the same thing. We, pr we preach Christ, they get saved, uh, they receive the Holy Spirit, we baptize them, and then they live a life, like Matthew 7 would say, of good works, showing that they also have been saved. So while the, the main kind of points are the same, the way that it happens in the first century and the way that what might happen in the 21st century would be different. Here, they uh, proclaim Christ, and then they speak in tongues and prophesy. That's not standard today. That might happen, but I wouldn't say unless you do that. And it can also sound, as you read this, that there's a second baptism necessary. This, this one baptism, and then the second baptism is where you really speak in tongues because you've received the Holy Spirit. That's not it. When at faith, you receive the Holy Spirit. Also, it can be misunderstood because this is Luke, Dr. Luke is describing events that you have to be baptized just in the name of the Lord Jesus. As it says, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think Luke's shorthanded because Jesus himself has already told us in Matthew 28 to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's better to always, if you're trying to make doctrine in narrative, take the big step back, understand the fullness of the Bible, and you'll have more sound doctrine. So as we're looking at this, though, as we're looking at the, the disciples of John, what's the point that I'm trying to make? We're going to see three different groups that he's going to evangelize. And as we're doing that, I'm hoping that it'll help you as you do evangelism. As you tell people about Jesus. Here, he's reaching people, the disciples of John. This is kind of the functional equivalent for us of good, moral people here today. Not haughty or arrogant towards Christ. Instead, very open to Jesus. They, they like the idea of Jesus. This could, even could be um, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. They just have a, a really misunderstand, a large misunderstanding of who Christ is. 
Um, but nevertheless, it's people in today's society that through probably a series of just good questions, within the week, within the days or a week, will likely have an understanding of who Christ is as you proclaim it and come to know Christ. So that's the first group that he, that he seeks to, uh, to evangelize. It's this group of John, these disciples of John. And for, for us, that's good moral people that are very open to Christ, want good doctrinal correction because they might not have it. They're, they're fine when you correct their doctrine. They're totally fine with it. They think that you likely know what you're talking about, and they want to hear it, and they want to believe in Jesus correctly. That's the first group. Those are rare. Those are rare, right? Those are rare. We don't necessarily have those all the time, and when you do, you're like, that was awesome. Thank you, Dad. We got we to gotta hit today, or knocked it in, or like felt good. So, uh, but we can see as he's doing that on hearing that they were baptized, and then where Jesus, Paul, laid his hands on them, and uh, they begin, they received the Holy Spirit, and they began speaking in, pro- in tongues and prophecy. You don't have magic hands. You can't, like, receive the Holy Spirit. I, no, no one's going to be able to do that. Uh, all in all, there are about 12 men. As you go into verse 8, you're going to see a, a second group that Paul evangelizes. It says, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, if you remember, in chapter 18, verse 19, he did the exact same thing. This is his go-to way for evangelism when he goes into a city. We've talked about this multiple times. In 19, it says, in 18, 19, he came to Ephesus. He went, he went there. He, and he went into the synagogue, he reasoned with the Jews, and they asked him to stay. So whatever he did there went well. They even like, stay, 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 and he couldn't. But he comes back, and he goes right back into that go-to method of evangelism. So these guys, these, these Jewish people that are in the synagogue, are different than the disciples of John. So the second group that he, he evangelizes is the Jews in the synagogue. And um, you can go put that up, part B, the Jews of the synagogue. And this was Paul's go-to method. Um, and Paul had... More success in Ephesus than he did in most cities when he did this. In most cities, after reasoning and persuading for a few days or a week, usually it's they're trying to kill him. And we want you out of here. Uh, like literally trying to kill him. And here, look what it says in verse 8. He did this for three months, boldly reasoning and persuading. And you can also notice the method of that of which he evangelizes is reasoning and persuading. So if we're going to draw a little bit of a contrast from group A to group B, Group A, the disciples of John, through some easy questions, they're really open to Jesus, they'll come to know Christ pretty quickly, days to a week. This is more like weeks to months, and it's not just through some simple questions, because they really think you, that you know what you're talking about and can inform them. This are people that, that think they know a lot about God, but they think they know more than you about God. And so, not simple questions, but reasoning and argumentation. Reasoning and argumentation is, and this takes longer, this takes months to weeks, you know, weeks to months to be able to evangelize them and tell them about Jesus. And so that's what Paul does, but he's able to do this for three months. This requires thinking, this requires study, this requires hearing their questions and being able to say, I don't even know if I can answer that right now, give me some time and I'm going to come back to that. But it's okay, because you guys are super smart people, and this doesn't scare you, you are unbelievably smart, and you can do this. So this kind of evangelism, even though it might seem like more work or even more difficult or you have to do study, is no problem for you because I know you and you guys are so smart that you can handle this. So Paul actually has some good uh, measure of success here. He's able to reason and persuade for for about three months before the opposition rose. It eventually did, of course. And you can see in verse uh, 9, some became stubborn. Some became stubborn. They continued in their unbelief. And then they even started speaking evil of the way, that's, of course, Christianity, before everybody that's there. And Paul, uh, it says, withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. This isn't, you know, like him taking his ball and going home. This is, I've done this before, and this always ends up to me getting beat up and almost dying. So I just want to preempt that part and uh, not die today. And just going to go to the next group. Going to go to the next group. And the Lord blesses this next group amazingly. Um, so here's what ha- amazingly. So this is what happens in verse the end of verse nine and into ten. You can see uh, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him. And this is what he did. He went to a different group, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. That can also mean tyrant. So he's literally going to the hall of the tyrant. Uh, this tyrant guy, Tyrannus, owned it, and Paul's going to rent it. And it says this continued. Notice this for two years, so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. 
but Jews and Greeks. So the third group he goes to is the residents of Asia in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. That's the C. Now, to contrast the three for us, you've got the disciples of John, ready, open, and willing to think about Jesus. Uh, likely followers, probably Jews, really open, get converted in weeks and months. To Jews in the synagogue who think they know more than Paul, requires much more reasoning, much more study, much more articulation. It's probably going to take weeks to months to moving away from those who kind of know God to a completely different worldview from Paul. Not a Judeo-Christian worldview, but a pagan worldview to Greeks, to pagans, to, to people that are completely foreign to anything Christian. And he goes there and he proclaims the gospel for two months. I'm sorry, for two years. For two years there. And this is a, a dialogue evangelism. As he's reading, this is a uh, reasoning with them. This is a dialogue evangelism that he does for two years at his own expense. At his own expense. So Paul would do this. This, this hall of Tyrannus uh, was, was able to be rented out. So Tyrannus himself would rent it or would use it himself to lecture during the, the nice parts of the day. So he would get there in the morning, probably 8.30 or 9, and lecture till 11 when people wanted to come for the nice cool parts of the day. And then when it got hot from 11 to 4 where they took their siesta or it was just too hot, uh, they would go and go take their naps. Well, Paul would rent it from 11 to 4 himself at his own expense and teach for five hours and preach the gospel for five hours. And then when it got to be 4 p.m., 5 p.m., he would, so in the morning he would go and he would work his job. He would put on his, his headband and put on his aprons and sweat like crazy, making tents just to make money to be able to eat all the way up from 6 till 11 in the morning, 6 a.m. until 11 in the morning, work hard, sweat hard, make tents, make money that he could sell so that he could eat and at his own expense rent the hall of Tyrannus, work hard at proclaiming the gospel from 11 to 4 every day for two solid years at his own expense in the heat of the day during the siesta time when nobody would come but faithfully preach the gospel anyway for two whole years after the time was over at 4, go back over tent make some more to be able to make more money to fund his evangelism. This is what Paul did for two solid years at his own expense to share the gospel with people. And you can say, well, if it's during the middle of the day when nobody comes and nobody's sleeping, did it work? Did people come? It says in verse 10, he did it for two years. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It did. As a matter of fact, I mean, that's Luke writing this. Everybody heard it. That's just an exaggeration. Well, in a report of what happened from a guy that didn't like Paul, in verse 26, uh, a guy said, this is during the, the next section, which we'll look during the riot, one of the guys that doesn't like Paul in verse 26 says, you see in here that uh, not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away people. So, yes, it did. The faithful gospel ministry of Paul really did work. And he was willing to, for his, um, at his own expense, preach the gospel. At his own expense, that's hard work to get up, make tents all morning, go preach the gospel for four hours, and then come back and work hard again and do it again for two solid years just to be able to fund the chance that he can preach the gospel to people. So here's a question that we can look at this one day. What are you willing to spend for the evangelism? What personal expenses are you willing to bear to have to be able to reach people? conclusion that we can see is that from Luke is that all the residents of Asia of Asia heard this after two years of plowing the field at his own expense it had good rich dividends two years at his own expense he reached pagans it took two years so even as we're looking at these three groups we can know that we all should invest in long-term gospel ministry now here's the thing I want you to think about um, you can do much more than you think in two years of faithful gospel ministry. Much more than you can ever conceive of if you're faithful to it. We live a long time now. We live 70, 80 in my family. Some of my family members live in their 90s, right? Um, like we live a long time. Just think in your full long life that you have, if for two solid years, of course you should do more, but even if that two solid years, if you did faithful gospel ministry, he reaches the entire Asia. And I think that we can do that as well. If the gospel uh, is able to reach the entire city of, of Ephesus and region of Asia in this particular time period in two solid years, 
Well, it can certainly reflect us well. It can reflect us well. It doesn't, we don't have to be crazy gifted like Paul either. We don't have to be, like, usually that's not how God does it. He uses people that aren't known, who aren't gifted. We can reach this city in two years if we're faithful to do ministry, but certainly um, in our lifetime. So let's be faithful to do that. We can do a lot in two years. We're going to come back to Paul's uh, work ethic in just a second. But we've seen Paul plant this gospel in the city of Ephesus here. And so in the following verses, as we're looking at the effects of the gospel, his solid gospel ministry that he did for these two years, I want us to see the effects of his ministry. And hopefully, as you see the effects of this ministry, I want you to be encouraged to say, okay, I believe that I should do it. I want to do it. What are some of the effects? And as I see those effects that happen with Paul, be encouraged that they can happen with me. That's what we want to see here. So um, and let's listen to some of the idols here of Ephesus. One commentator told us some of the, some of the uh, idols that were going on. They had the idols. This, this just only sounds like Ephesus. It won't sound like us at all, okay? Sports, theater, like, you know, TV and movies, um, wealth, and uh, the, the, this is more sex. The idol of Artemis, which is like the, the sex goddess of fertility, and they believe that she, her image had fallen from heaven and that she was housed inside the temple when Paul arrived preaching Jesus, who's stronger, this crucified Savior that's stronger than your goddess, uh, Artemis. Of course, they didn't like that. So this doesn't sound anything like us right now. Sports, wealth, uh, theater, um, sexual things. That doesn't sound like us though, right? So as we see this, as Paul preaches the gospel to this city, which sounds just like us, hopefully when we see his faithful gospel ministry and we see the effects of it, we'll be encouraged then to endure or begin, wherever you are. You can begin right now. But let's look at some of these things. But before we start, look at verse 10. Verse 10. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So one of the key ingredients of Paul's gospel ministry is hearing the word of the Lord. It even, Dr. Luke bookends it on verses 10 and 20. You can see it in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase in mighty prevail mightily. So as we're going into, if you're signing on and you're saying yes in your head and heart about gospel ministry, make sure that we all agree that while absolutely, of course, good works are necessary as a believer in our gospel ministries, the word, the ministry itself must be beginning and ending with and all the way saturated through with the word itself. The word is the key ingredient that must be uh, in our, our ministry. We want to speak the word, we want to preach the word, we want to proclaim the word, we want to uh, teach and apply the word in people's hearts and minds. As a matter of fact, after this was over, Paul in chapter 20, looking back at his time in Ephesus in chapter 20, 2027, said, for I did not shrink to declare you the whole counsel of God. So even as Paul looks back and says, while I was here with you, I applied the word to you. I, I didn't shrink, I, I, I actually declared the entire counsel to you while I was there, the, the entire will of God, or the entire will of God and salvation to you while I was there. As we know that the word has unbelievable effects, and so we need to believe in the power of the word. In Psalm 19, which we could go to Psalm 119, certainly, uh, but Psalm 19, it tells us, 19.7, that the word does this, the law of the Lord, or the word of God, is perfect, reviving the soul. It revives the soul. So as we proclaim the word, a word-based ministry, of course do good works, but we have to have a word-based ministry where we teach people the gospel. It revives the soul. It literally makes hearts come alive. Another place is uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So if you're, if you're believing, starting to believe with me that the Bible should be the absolute basis of the way that you and I live our lives in doing gospel ministry. And let me just make sure when I say doing gospel ministry, I'm not saying like wear one of these, right? I'm not saying that you, you're going to start your own church. You might do this, but you can do this one-on-one. -on -one. You can do this in your community group. You can teach and apply the text of scripture with people as they tell you what's going on in their life in any situation with your neighbor. Ne next time you have a conversation with them in your community group with people that are believers, every single one of us have the ability and should be if we're Christians, we are involved in a faithful gospel ministry. So Second uh, Timothy 3.16 tells us that the word itself does this. All scriptures breathed out by God, theonoustos, it comes from God, and it does these things. 
Scripture is profitable for teaching. It teaches people. Whenever you bring the word, bring the word to bear on the things that are going on in people's lives, it teaches them. It also reproves them. It also corrects them. It also trains them in righteousness. As they realize they're sinners, it also trains them in righteousness. It helps them understand that if they're in Christ, they have now been applied the full righteousness of Christ. And that they are no longer going to walk down the path of hell. And no longer does God count their sin against them. But God now sees them as righteous and holy and pure. So the word does these things. It also uh, equips the man of God that he can be confident in his good works. That he can be equipped in his good works. So it, it does all these things. It makes you confident. So in our ministry, as we're certainly serving people, the word itself must be preeminent so the first thing i want you to see as in this effects of solid gospel ministry you can go ahead and put it up number one is the word increased and prevailed and so the word itself must be preeminent in our in our uh gospel ministries effective gospel ministries will increase and prevail when they are word-based when they are word-based trusting in the good news of christ from his word so this isn't just Sunday morning preaching. This is explaining and applying the text of Scripture in your community groups, in your one-on-one relationships, and, of course, it's also teaching. Now, as we go through this, we're going to see some more effects. Every single one of us wants, as we're walking through our Christian life, we want for those that don't know Christ, that we're trying to reach, or that we love, that whom we care for, we want them to see and understand God's power. If, if we were asked the question, do you want them to just see the glory of God and understand it, you'd be like, of course I do. Well, here's an encouragement. This is what happens whenever we're faithful. Remember, the backdrop of verses 11 through 20 that we're going to look at here, and Paul has this interaction, the backdrop is verse 10. This continued for two years. The backdrop is verse 10. Paul had faithful gospel ministry for two whole years, sweating it out, spending his own money, doing ministry. And this is what happens. God was doing extraordinary miracles. When you see the word extraordinary, you can think extraordinary like mighty, of course, but you also need to think rare, as in not happening now, but really rare at that particular time. The the word usage that Luke is trying to help us see is this was just really, really rare that this kinds of stuff happened. It's not uh, a miracle. It's an extraordinary miracle. Every miracle is like mighty, right? Every miracle is pretty awesome. But this is really rare miracle by the hands of Paul. So that even we have the word handkerchiefs. This is more like the Kurt Rambis sweatband. You know, just me, 1980s Lakers. You can Google that later and you'll, you'll thank me. Uh, I'm too old for most of y'all. So this is a, a, a big headband, LeBron. When he, in the headband days, uh, whenever he had the headband. So this is Paul, whenever, as I said before, before he goes and preaches the gospel, putting on his headband right around the apron, sweating hard, working hard as he's making these tents, uh, wiping, they, people would come and take his sweaty headbands and aprons and take them. And as they would take them, you can see that so that his handkerchiefs and apron, they were taking away the people, touching their skin. And if they were sick, their diseases left them. And if they were even had a demon in them, demon in them, the demon was exercised. Now, unfortunately, these particular verses have been misused quite a bit, to where people are selling their prayer hankies that are going to heal you, you know, they're holding up there, you just buy this right here for $99, and, you know, it comes to you, you're going to be fine, it's going to take away all your stuff. We should note that Paul was not selling these, he was actually, they were just taking them for free, they, they weren't being sold, but, you know, you don't have to read the Bible to, anyway. Uh, so they have, these, they have these handkerchiefs that are healing people, and Paul's kind of sweaty headbands and, and aprons are strapping around him while he's sweating, making tents, going off, and then whenever it's happening, uh, they're healing people. They're exercising demons out of people. Now, I want to do this. I'm going to keep going in just a second, but what we see here is God's power uh, is on display. God displays his power. Number two, God's displayed his power in this particular city. So one of the effects of faithful gospel ministry, and we can we can read this and say, like, man, even Paul sweats healing people? That's awesome. I mean, what? wow, Paul. And Luke's quick in verse uh, in verse 11 to make sure all our emphasis is off of Paul. Look, 
And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So it's not about Paul. Look what God's doing. So God was displaying his power. So it's not about Paul. But I do want to take one brief little excursus here uh, and talk about Paul. Just for one second and encourage all of us uh, in this. This is a side note on hard work, on hard working. The sweaty headbands and aprons were a representation of hard work. He didn't use uh, something called pillow to heal people. They were stealing Paul's pillow all the time where he sleeps and rests and healing people. That's not what they did. Instead, they took the sweaty headbands. They were the symbols that God chose to underscore the character of God that then became the channel of God's power to heal people. The symbol of Paul's hard work was the thing that God used to heal people. I think that underscores that we should be hard workers. One commentator says it this way, Paul made tents, taught apologetics, pastored, watched over God's people, administered airing with tears, went from house to house, evangelized, church planted, uh, directed great missionary enterprises. What a man, what a servant of Christ. Truly great athletes learn to train even when they do not feel like it and to play even when they're hurt. That's especially true in the battle against evil. In this day of meism and hedonism and leisure, we need tough, muscular Christians like Paul to work hard. So just a side note, work hard. Your day at the end, you should be tired. Work hard. God used the representation of hard work to be the thing that healed people. Now, back over. In our faithful ministry, uh, we want people to see the display of God's power, and that's what happened here. Because of Paul being faithful in his ministry, God's power was put on display by extraordinary miracles. Now, Luke is here describing historical events, not prescribing things that we should mimic. So uh, none of you should be selling your sweaty headbands uh, or even taking your sweaty headbands for free and laying them on people and saying, I can heal you. I saw it in in Acts 19. All I got to do is just go jog for a little while and let me rub this headband on you and you're going to be fine. Um, The focus is is about God doing extraordinary miracles. Um, Instead of your, your and I sweaty headbands, this is what we do in order for God's power to be put on display. Tony Morita says it this way. Most of our life will involve submitting to God's revealed will in the Bible, walking by the Spirit, and pursuing godly character. Our lives lived out loud in front of people, that's the thing that puts on God's display. That's the thing that puts his display of power to this world. So in your ministries, just know, faithfully living out for Christ, proclaiming Jesus to people, that's the thing that just puts God's power on display. So the application is continue to do that. Continue in your word ministry. Be steady and true in the long haul of gospel ministry. And God, I promise you, this isn't like 99% possible, 100% possible, God will put display his power through your life. It may not be the way you think. It may not be as big as you think. And it certainly won't be about you. It'll be about him. But God will put on display his power through your life. Then we see another uh, see another emphasis. Now, in our lives as we're doing ministry, we don't want for people just to see the magnificent power of God. But as they see it, we want them to extol Christ after it happens. We want them to see it, yes, but after they see it, we want them to worship God. We want them to proclaim God's holiness. We want them to revere God. So this is what we're going to see here. Uh, In verses 13 through 17, people are going to magnify Jesus. The backdrop, again, being Paul's faithful ministry. Look at verse 17. After it's all over, it says, fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So the third thing is, the third, you can put it up, people magnified Jesus. People magnified. Faithful ministry brings about not only the display of God's power, but the worship of Jesus. People magnified Jesus. Here's how it happens in this city. Verse 13, and then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, probably not an occupation you knew existed, 
I didn't either, right? You're just reading it, and you're like, that's an occupation? How does that happen? You can just imagine they're new to the city. We're moving in. So, hey, what do you do? Well, you know, I weld. I, I'm a carpenter. What do you do? Well, I'm an itinerant Jewish exorcist. Just moved in town. No big deal. Got it at night school. It's, it's fine. I, I do it with my, with my brothers. We, it's kind of a side job that we have. Okay. Well, that sounds fun. Um, who are you with? The Seven Sons of Sceva. Oh, okay. Sounds like a rock band, but whatever. Um, so we're, we have these itinerant Jewish exorcists undertaking the name of of, of Jesus in their little scam jobs. These guys are scammers, okay? They're the Nigerian prince that's emailing you saying, I've got a large sum of money I want to give to you. All you got to do is give me your account number. It's all coming to you. So that's who they are. If you're a Nigerian, I'm not trying to like offend you. That's who emails me. Uh, they're Nigerian. But anyway, um, so <laughs> here's what's going on. These guys are scammers. These guys are scammers. That's their job. As a matter of fact, every single commentary I read in verse uh, 14, is it 14, um, where it says the sons of Sceva of a Jewish high priest named Sceva are doing this. Every commentator I, I read said the, the dad of these guys, Sceva, that says that he's a Jewish high priest, probably wasn't. He was likely just proclaiming to be a Jewish high priest, and it's not even true. Like he was just a liar, and his sons were all liars like him. And so it could be that they were just, you know, bad, and he was actually good, but th- most people said that's not the case. Uh, and so, like all scammers uh, who prey on the very next tragedy or th- trend that's going on, Jesus was the trend here. And so, like all scammers, they're looking for the latest name to drop in their scam jobs to pull one over you. And so, they're looking after watching Paul's ministry kind of bloom over the last two years in the city of Ephesus. And they're like, who's this guy Paul talking about? Jesus. Okay. Well, everybody's talking about He's the hot topic. So, they're going in here and they're going to start... Uh, pretending uh, to cash in on Jesus' name in these little uh, itinerant Jewish exorcist endeavors. Uh, And then in verse 15 is what happens. But this is what happens. They're going to try it out. But the evil spirit answered them this. And every time I read verse 15, I hear it in a mobster's voice. So it's like, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? That's how I hear it. So you hear it where (laughs) basically what happens is um, the demon essentially tells them, as they're trying to invoke Jesus' name, it's actually real. And they're like, okay, uh, we've been doing this a while as, as, as demons, as evil spirits. And we know that we can't beat Jesus. And we know that we can't beat Paul. But you don't have anything on me. You have no power over me at all. And so since the seven sons of Sceva didn't belong to Jesus, the demon was not forced to relinquish any control over to them. So instead of the evil spirit being exercised from the man, the man actually becomes supernaturally strong. He hulks out in the room, and when he hulks out, he uh, beats these seven brothers up pretty profusely, so bad so that he beats them up so bad they left naked and bleeding. They left naked and bleeding. You can see it there in verse 7. So that they fled from the house naked and wounded. Now, you can ask yourself, who won the fight? Who won the fight here? Matt Chandler says it the best. Um, if when you started the fight, you had pants on, and at the end of the fight, you weren't wearing any pants, you lost the fight. You lost the fight. I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that it's actually part of the fight that made them lose their pants. It wasn't actually part of the itinerant ministry. You know, in order for this to really work, we all got to take our pants off, and then this is really going to work. I'm hoping that it, they lost their pants in the fight, but anyway, back to the text. Um, so here's what happens, right? So they, they, they go in there and try to evoke Jesus' name. It doesn't work. And this devil beats the trash out of them. And then after that, uh, in verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon everybody. And then what happens through the fa- faithful ministry of Paul in the last two years where they realize, oh, this guy Jesus is for real. Paul's ministry is for real. We're all going to extol the name of the Lord Jesus. So we should never, ever misuse Jesus for our own profit. Heads up back to verse 11 and 12 who are selling hankies right now online uh, for profit. It should never happen. It could go bad. But uh, what happened here is that the immense power of Jesus was made known. And when it was made known, it was extolled. More people in Ephesus then recognized the power of Jesus, and they extolled him. They revered him. They esteemed him. They worshiped him all the more. So the context of two years of faithful ministry, that in this particular thing when it happens, 
not only did they see the power of God, but they worshiped Jesus after that. So this can certainly be an odd story to read and try to understand the meaning. And certainly, you know, like 2,000 years ago after this happened, all the Christians were like, dude, you got to know what happened. That party's like, can I tell you a story? <laughs> Look, this is what happened to the seven sons of Sceva. Like, certainly they're telling this story for a long time. But the backdrop is that Paul had an amazing two years of ministry that we can also, in our own lives, be faithful in our own ministries that when we do, Jesus will be esteemed by people. When we're faithful to proclaim the gospel, not only will they see the glory of God, they will worship Jesus. This is not 99% possible. People will one day, every soul, but even those that we're reaching, will worship Jesus. We can bank on that. And I think that that is an amazing encouragement for us to continue in our ministry. That not only will God's power be seen, but he will be worshipped because of it. He will be worshipped because of it. So continue. Continue in your ministry. Don't stop. And then you get to this interesting phrase in 19, 18. But also those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who have practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in sight of all. This is where book burning started. This is ain't got nothing on Paul, right? Uh, it happened back in Acts 19. So anyway, um, what's going on here? What's going on? Many who are believers came. So faithful gospel ministry will have this. Here's the fourth thing. This is an effect of solid gospel ministry long term where we're going to plug in. Believers will also confess and renounce sin. So in the midst of us believers reaching unbelievers and seeing them see the power of God and become worshipers and being saved, etc., like Paul did, we ourselves as believers come face to face with our own sin in our life. And we have a continual ongoing of confession and repentance. Believers. These believers in, in the city of Ephesus, which we've already talked about, they're strong in the occult, realized that participation in the occult and following Jesus are not compatible. Newsflash, you can't be a devil worshiper and also a Jesus worshiper. We kind of laugh at that, right? Like, of course, I'm strong as them. You can't be in the occult and follow Jesus. So let's ask this question. Let's expose a little bit. What in your life is incompatible with following Jesus? This is an obvious one, right? We all kind of know that's can't be in the occult. But there's also some obvious things in your life that you know are incompatible with following Jesus. What are those things? It shouldn't surprise us that Luke tells us believers were doing this, confessing and repenting of these things. Because when we become saved, the process, this is what happened for them, the process of sanctification happens where we become more and more like Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit starts shaping us into the image of Christ. He did that for them, and he's doing that for you. And so even for you, if you're a believer in Christ, he's taking you through the process of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is molding you into the image of God and pointing out to you constantly, this in your life is incompatible with being a follower of Jesus. This in your life has to go. So what is it? What is it that's going on in your life? Let, let me say this. You can read this and you can say, book burning. Okay, that's interesting. Why are they burning them? Because they don't want anybody else to practice the evil. That's why. Sin that needs to be ended does not need to be passed on to other people. It needs to be ended. Why does Luke tell us how much they cost? Why does he point out that all the book's value came up to 50,000 pieces of silver? Because he's pointing out not only did they burn them, they didn't sell them. They didn't make the money. They could have made the money and chose not to make the money, indicating that holiness is also costly. Following Jesus, pursuing him, killing sin, Whenever you realize the incompatibility of the things in your life that don't go with Christ, it's costly. Holiness is costly many times. Pursuing Jesus is difficult. It's not easy. It's costly in our lives. Tony Marita says it this way. The believers here in Ephesus wanted a radical break with all that was ungodly in their lives because the Spirit of God produced deep change in their hearts. What needs to radically break out of your own life because a deep change has happened in your life. What are the radical breaks that need to happen in your life of sin? Or maybe said this way, 
what's going on where we believe is in your life where we need to be confessing and renouncing the sin in our life? I have it. We all have it. It's not faith necessarily enough. We all have it. Praise God that he's continually pointing it out to us. So think about it. Don't run from this exercise of gospel pride. This isn't meant to make you feel bad. It's meant to make you rejoice that you are being trained in righteousness right now. That even this is not held against you, but Christ has put his life forward at the cross for us. So think about that. What is it? Write it down right now. Type it in your phone now. Think about this for a second. What is it? Identify it. What's the radical break that needs to happen in your life? What sin? Believers in our faithful ministry, we will have these times where we're confronted with things that we need to, for them, be a cult. But we need to throw off. We need to willingly have a radical break in our life. And notice, when they did that, the word of the Lord prevailed. More salvations happened. Their obedience to break off of sin, God blesses, and more people get saved. That's what we want. We want that. I'm not, I'm not saying... You kill this sin, God promises more salvations in your life. I'm not saying that. I am saying that's what happened here and certainly could happen in your life. But even nevertheless, he's still calling us all to confess and repent. So what is it? Write it down. In this time of response, take some time to pray through this. Take some time to confess it to the Lord and beg for the Lord to help you break it off. And don't forget this. The gospel right now, the good news of Jesus is reminding us that you are forgiven of this. At salvation, forgiven. So this isn't God holding it in your face and say, what about this? This is God saying, I've already paid for this too. That's how much I love you. That's how much you've been forgiven. You are now posi- positioned, as, as Ephesians 1 says, in the heavenlies, loved eternally by God, forgiven counted holy and blameless and righteous in his sight. And because of that, we want to kill it. So in this next time of response, we're going to go into the Lord's Supper, where you're thinking of this and you're saying, well, God, but I have this sin in my life. I'm not even worthy to take the Lord's Supper. And I'm saying, no, you precisely do take the Lord's Supper, indicating that I have no other hope besides Christ. And so as we go into the Lord's Supper, you take the supper because you remember that the righteousness of Christ has been given to you. And as we go into a response time, maybe you just need to sit and pray for a minute. Maybe you just need to confess and repent. That's fine. Join us in worship when you're ready. But use this time of response. Don't, don't let it just kind of, no, 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 and then you're thinking about the pamphlet. Like, like the Lord is pressing in, and it's good. The Lord, the Holy Spirit is pressing in on you and I right now. Use this time to respond, think, pray, confess, and thank the Lord that he's been so gracious to us. I'm hoping that as we look at this text, it's encouraged, it's encouraged you to want to continue in gospel ministry, that it would be word-based, that the people around you would certainly see the power of God, that they would become worshipers of God, and that you would continually be sanctified in that process.